accident. You've probably experienced something where in your heart you have just felt like utter weakness. And all the strength drains out of you. That's one of the ways we speak of it in English, isn't it? Their hearts melted and they became as water. And so in desperation, Joshua prays. Look at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, expressions of mourning, expressions of woe and desperation, expressions of prayerfulness. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, Yahweh God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? We see this reversal. Joshua now is afraid. Before it was the people of Canaan who were afraid. Now Joshua is afraid. He he can imagine what's going to happen. Word will quickly spread, and all the cities of Canaan will realize the people of Israel aren't invincible. We can take them on. We can destroy them. And Joshua can see nothing but decimation. And so Joshua appeals to Yahweh. Ultimately, he appeals to the great name. What will become of your great name, O Lord, God? You who are the God who saves. You of the God who delivers. What will happen if your people are utterly destroyed? Your name will be nothing. Ah, that God, Yahweh, he's a weak God. He's a nothing God. We totally decimated the people of Yahweh. We have no reason to fear Yahweh. That's the heart of what Joshua is praying here. Let's see how God answers Joshua's prayer. Verse 10. The Lord says to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? I don't know how you read those questions. We should read them as a sharp rebuke. Joshua, what are you doing down there? Stand up. What are you doing? You should know what to do. It's a sharp rebuke from God. But why a sharp rebuke? Joshua should have known the only reason that this would have happened is because The people of God had not been faithful. Remember back what we read in Joshua 6.18. Joshua 6.18. But you keep yourselves from these things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Joshua should have known. God is the power to deliver the people of Ai, even to 3,000 men. And so God sharply rebukes Joshua. Get to it, Joshua. There's a reason there's a defeat. Because there's sin in the camp. And you need to figure it out. And you need to deal with it. Look what God says next. Verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. 
that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more. So pause there. Think of that. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So in verse 12 here, verse 11, sorry, we we have a number of words that are building up to, to weight the significance of what has happened. Sinned, transgressed, taken, stolen, deceived, placed. These Devoted things, either devoted to destruction as a sacrifice before God or devoted to God as holy to be placed in the temple. These things were God's. And Achan has stolen from God. And he kept it secret. And he acted deceitfully. And so Achan must be destroyed. Think of the sense of Joshua and the people of Israel. There at the end of verse 12, I will be with you no more. That's a profound threat. Left alone in the, in the land of Canaan to be utterly destroyed. I will be with you no longer unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Unless you deal with the sin, with the transgression with the defilement that is amongst you. But you also see a note of hope, unless. There is a way that God has provided that they may deal with this sin, that they may deal with the impending wrath of God, that they might avert that, and that as a people of God, they might return to a place of blessing. So beginning in verse 13, we see, Yahweh turns away his anger. How will he do this? How will God be gracious to the people of Israel? Well, he's gracious. He gives them a procedure to identify this transgression. So that they might destroy the devoted things from among themselves. And so now purify themselves, consecrate themselves before the Lord. And this procedure is going to clear the innocent And clarify who the wicked are. Who has sinned? I can imagine what Achan's going to experience in this process. Heightening his sense of guilt. Heightening his sense of impending destruction. For his rebellion against a holy God. So let's look at the procedure. Verse 13. Get up, God says to Joshua. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man, by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He, 
and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So God commands what must be done to the offender. He must be destroyed. He must suffer the same fate of destruction that the people of Jericho suffered because of their great wickedness. And so the people consecrate themselves. How long will God avert his anger? How long will it be between I will be with you no longer unless you take care of this sin? I I imagine, as I think about the scenario, that the people of Israel are on tenderhooks. There's a high degree of fear and anxiety. They saw what happened to Jericho, and it was not pretty. And they do not want to be on the receiving end of God's holy anger. Verse 16. So Joshua rose early. I wonder if he slept. (laughs) I don't know. It doesn't say he woke up. It just says he rose early. I wonder if he was on his face before the Lord all that night as well. So Joshua rose early in the morning. First thing, light breaks, we're going to deal with this. The first opportunity of light, as the Lord commanded. And Joshua brings Israel near, tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was chosen. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. This is a a call not to lie. I was trying to think of a a modern day equivalent that we might Think of the court where you put your hand on the Bible. I promise to tell the truth. So help me God. Um, Kind of a religio-secular, judicial mixing of things. But here, it's, it's like that. We might say only much more heightened. Give glory to God. Speak the truth. And Achan responds truthfully. He says to Joshua, Verse 20, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. Interesting in verse 21, early on, I saw something beautiful. These are two words that we see in the garden in Genesis 3, 6. Eve saw of the fruit and saw it was beautiful. Picking up this theme of sin and rebellion. Achan saw something beautiful and he coveted it. Well, he he saw a fancy robe from Shinar. Who doesn't want a good coat, right? But but what's what's at work here? What, What significance do we see here in the detail given? It just doesn't say he took some clothes. It's, the Bible takes pains to give some specifics. A beautiful coat, it wasn't just a beautiful coat, it's a beautiful cloak from Shinar. 
what's Achan doing here? He is seeing beautiful things from Babylon. He's seeing something prestigious. This is from Babylon. It's worth a lot of money. It has high value. It has value. It has prestige. We might say, and seeing some clothes from, I don't know, what's the most expensive clothing brand? Versace or something? I don't know. Coochie, there we go. Something, right? Ridiculously expensive. And when you know it, people know you're wearing it. And so Achan covets this. He wants the prestige and the beauty of Babylon. He wants to those things that mark out success in a godless society. I think it's interesting, as we think about what Achan has done here, to read the warning we get in Deuteronomy 29. I'm going to read Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18. Warnings to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab before they crossed the Jordan. So just a few months previous. Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root of bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself and his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against the man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. One of the phrases that strikes me there, verse 19, I shall be safe, though I walk in stubbornness. That's what I can thought. I can just get this under my cloak and and scurry out of Jericho. No one's going to notice. I can get away with it. God's not going to see. It's just fine. No, it's not fine. Achan is fully under the seductive spell of deceitful desires. Being seduced by material things and being seduced by the, by the lie that you can sin and God's not going to notice. You can get away with it and God's not going to care. We see here such a profound contrast between Rahab and Achan. Rahab lived in Jericho and was willing to give it all up to be joined with the people of Israel. Achan in the people of Israel, was willing to give it all up that he might be joined, as it were, to the pleasures and to the lifestyle of Jericho. And so Achan will receive the same judgment that the people of Jericho received. Well, we see something of the intensity of this situation. How were the people of Israel feeling? Well, we knew their hearts had melted and they felt like water. Well, once Achan spills the beans, thankfully, honestly... It allows the people of Israel to identify where it is, what to do about it. And so, verse 22, Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. Notice the intensity there. We need to find this as quickly as we can. We need to deal with this as quickly as we can, lest the Lord leave us. Lest the Lord's judgment come upon the whole nation. So they run quickly, 
and they find it just as Achan described it. And without delay, then, the people of God obey God's instructions in what to do with this wickedness, with this outrageous evil. Verse 24, and Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, therefore to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Trouble. The Valley Well, I wonder at this point what your thoughts are about Achan's sin and what your thoughts are about the consequences of Achan's sin and the punishment that Achan experienced. I mean, it's not like he murdered someone. It's not like he committed adultery. All he did was take a cloak and some silver and gold. Isn't God a little extreme here? Isn't this that big angry God going kind of over the top dealing with this? But Achan didn't steal these things from his neighbor. He stole them from God. We read and we looked at this last week as Nathan really uh, focused in on, on Joshua 6. Jericho was given over to destruction. And as Nathan talked about the marching around the city and the process they went, this was, this was not so much a, a strategy for war as much as a worship service. And the destruction of Jericho was an act of holy judgment upon a wicked people. It functioned like a, a sacrifice of consecration as the people entered the land of Canaan. And as it were, Achan reached up to the sacrifice and took some stuff off it. He said, some of that's for me. He stole it from God, the holy God. Achan ignored God's specific warnings about taking of the devoted things. Low view of God did Achan have. I can get away with this. God doesn't keep his promises. He's not going to know. No one else is going to know. And I've been thinking about this. This is the folly of sin. Achan, when are you going to wear that coat? Now, we laugh, right? But that's what sin does in our lives. We do that. We, we do foolish things because sin blinds our hearts. So Achan had no fear of the holiness of God. Achan had no fear of the consequences of sinning against a holy God. So one of the reasons we might question, one of the reasons we wrestle with this passage, one of the reasons we wonder why God's so severe, we might say so extreme, so over the top, it's not about God. It's not about Achan. It's about our view 
of God and our view of Achan's sin. Why does God give us this story? Lots of reasons. One of the reasons is because God knows we need lots of illustrations about His holiness and how wicked sin is. Because we don't get it. And I want you to, to think about your like, natural instinct to this chapter to realize the, the reason we think that's over the top is because we have a really low and, and over the top, under the below. I'm trying to think of that. We have too low a view, right, of God's holiness and of God's righteousness. So God's given us this story. One of the reasons he's given this to the church, one of the reasons this is in the scriptures for us at the end of the ages, for the church, is that we might have a heightened awareness of the holiness of God. We need to sit with this chapter. We need to read it over and over and ask the Lord to elevate in our hearts a sense of his holiness. That we might read this chapter and, as it were, agree with God at the seriousness of this judgment. That this was a right and proper and appropriate and just and holy and fair consequence to Achan. Well, as people living in the New Covenant, we don't have a temple. There's not an altar that we might be uh, stealing things from. But as we read the New Testament, we realize that we have become the temple of God. We individually are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that you, sorry, that your singular body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Paul here is using the singular. You individually, believers, are a temple of the Holy God. The Spirit of the Holy God is dwelling in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul speaks of it in a corporate sense. You, the church, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you, plural, you all, not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Think about the sin of Achan, as it were, taking something of the sacrifice off the altar. Now think about you as the temple, sanctified and holy, the dwelling place of God. How seriously do you take God's holy indwelling? How seriously do you take the fact that God has sanctified you as his dwelling place? And how seriously do you take the defilement of sin in your life? When you turn to First Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1 and verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.14 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Be holy. Don't allow any defilement in your life. There's one other path you want to go to as I pause in this story in Joshua and reflect the seriousness of sin. And that is not just merely the seriousness of sin individually when we defile the temple that is our bodies, 
Well, what's the seriousness, seriousness of sin amongst us, the church corporate? This unified temple, the indwelling place of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6. I want you to see as we read here something of why Paul has this zeal. Where did he get that from? Passages like Joshua 7. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6. There's sin in the church. A man in the church is sleeping with his father's wife. We don't know whether his father is dead or alive. And the church is not confronting the man or doing anything about this man as he comes along to church and he wants to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I love God and I love this woman and the church has done nothing about it. Here's what Paul says. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's talking to the church in Corinth here. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So today... One of the challenges, one of the direct applications from this passage that we're looking at in Joshua 7 is, are you hiding and treasuring sin today, hoping God doesn't see, hoping God doesn't notice, hoping you can get away with it and there be no consequence, that you can avoid God's holy anger at defiling the temple that is to be holy? Are you today more fearful of losing the pleasure of your sin than you are fearful of the judgment of God? That's a good test. Sin's strong in its temptation. The delights of sin are real. The pleasures of sin are real. But are you more fearful of losing the passing pleasures of sin than you are of God's holy judgment? Sin is deceitful. It is enticing. We feel its power. Do you today feel imprisoned and trapped, captured by sin? As we look at the story of Achan, and you consider the holiness of God, I trust you might have some motivation to flee from sin. And the fleeing is not a fleeing that you do in your own strength, and then go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've fleed from my sin, please forgive me. Fleeing from sin begins with, oh Jesus, I am sinning against me, you help me flee from sin. And I'd encourage you right now, the sermon's not over, but I'm encouraging you right now, resolve in your heart 
that you would do whatever it takes to root out that sin in your life that you are indulging. Resolve in your heart right now to reach out to a brother and sister. Confess your sin to them. Seek for their help, their encouragement, their wisdom that you might be rescued from destruction. Okay, let's go back to Joshua 7. Before we move on in the story, there's one other thing I want us to note, and that's that there is a lasting effect of sin. Sin has a lasting effect. It just doesn't impact us. It impacts those around us. In Joshua chapter 7 and verse 24, we've read over this, but there's a curious way something is stated. Joshua 24, and Joshua and all Israel took uh, with him took Achan the son of Zerah. Now this is strange. Because Zerar is not Achan's immediate father. Kami is. And Zerar is not the father of the tribe. Judah is. So why is he particularly identified here as Achan, the son of Zerar? It happens a few places in Joshua, even at the end of Joshua, in Joshua 22.20. Here we see... The scripture is pointing. It's a textual pointing. What's happening here? Well, we learn in the genealogy of King David and so of Jesus that Rahab marries a man by the name of Salmon. And Salmon is descended from the man called Perez. And Perez and Zerar were twins. Let's look at Genesis 38 for a moment. Genesis 38 and verse 27. Judah did a wicked thing. And Tamar became pregnant through his sin. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand and said, this one came out first. But as he drew it back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Zorah. Remember in God's promise what happened back in Joshua 2? Rahab puts a scarlet thread used to identify the window through which she delivers two spies. So the king, King David, and from King David, Jesus, that that king lineage, starting from the tribe of Judah, does not descend through Zerah, which it should have done. Instead, it comes through Perez. Achan, like Esau, forsakes his birthright. Lots of things are happening. I think this is a reminder that we think we can contain sin because we think we can manage sin. We think we can understand the consequences of sin. We think we can see all the things that might happen, but we can't. 
When we sin, we're blind to how sinful it is. When we sin, we're blind to the holiness of God. And when we sin, we cannot begin to imagine the consequences of our sin to those who are immediately with us or the consequences of what might be tasted in generations in the future. Well, we get to the end of Joshua 7 and the people of Israel have been purified. That which is evil has been dealt with. The people are now purified. So they go in, they return to battle, and they destroy Ai and Bethel. That's the first 29 verses of Joshua 8. God is now on their side, and they have victory. Of that section, because of time, we're not going to spend any time there. I just want to go to verse 2. I want to point out another thing that indicates the folly of sin. Joshua, 2, Joshua 8 and verse 2. Here's the instructions. And you shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its king. Destruction. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against a city and behold. Look at the folly of Achan. I'm going to take a cloak and a bit of, a bit of gold and a bit of silver. Why do you do that? Well, because he thinks it was owed to him. It was his right to take what was God's. And his sin blinded him to God's holiness and to God's generosity. If he had submitted to God and obeyed him, he could have gone into Ai and Bethel and probably got more cloaks and more gold than he could carry. He'd probably have to get his sons and his grandsons to help him. And that's the folly of sin. We sin because we don't trust God. Achan sinned because he didn't trust God's goodness and God's faithfulness. We don't really believe God wants to bless us. We believe God's holding out on us. We think God's commands are burdensome. And that the only place for pleasure and joy and peace is through sin. And we look at this and we're reminded... As much as it is necessary to consider the holiness of God, it is necessary for us to consider the generosity of God in our fight against sin. God is not holding out on us. God is giving us wisdom for his way of blessing. While the people of Israel, with defeating Ai and Bethel, they now have clear course. They continue up the ridgeline north about 20 miles, and they now get to the town of Shechem. They're right at the base of Mount Abal and Mount Gerizim. We read in Deuteronomy 27 the significance that we see there. We might ask, why this location? Well, we read back in Genesis 12:7 that it was at this location that God specifically says to Abraham, this land I will give you. And Abraham builds a sacrifice and he worships. Now, about 600 years later, God's promises are fulfilled. And the children of Abraham are now in the land. The land is being given to them. And they are here worshiping God. Turn to Joshua 8 and verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord and the God of Israel on Mount Abal. 
Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has yielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. I'm going to explain just a little of what's significant here. Burnt offerings. These are a particular kind of offering. These are an atonement sacrifice. This is what's necessary to deal with sin. The whole animal is burned and is offered up to the Lord. You might write down Leviticus chapter 1 to read us some more on that. So the burnt offering is an atonement offering. Then there's a peace offering. This is an expression of thanksgiving, a recognition of peace and fellowship with God. Because of the burnt offering being offered and God's acceptance and God's forgiveness, the people now are in fellowship with God. And so they have peace with God. And so these sacrifices speak of the need of atonement. And so it's fitting that the altar is built on Mount Abal. Mount Abal was the, the mountain that they would shout the curses. If you disobey the covenant, if you disobey the laws, cursed shall you be, here are the curses you will experience. On Mount Gerizim, Gerizim, they would shout the blessings of the Lord. And so the altar is built on Mount Abal, because are the people of Israel going to be perfect? No, they will sin. How might they avoid the curses of God? They might avoid the curses of God through sacrifice. So the, the offerings are significant, burnt offering, peace offering. The location of the altar is significant. And finally, we see the importance of the words of the covenant. Down in verse 32, we read, And there in the presence of the people of Israel, Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then down in verse 34 and 35, he speaks all the law to all the people. They might say, why would they go to the trouble of writing? I'm not sure if Joshua himself literally wrote every word, but that he wrote some and under his supervision, some of the other scribes wrote some, not sure. But clearly, he's primarily responsible, and he's the primary one who is writing down the law. The law is written for all to read. We don't know the literary rates of the nation at this point. Um, higher, I think, than what most historians would say. People could go up to the whitewashed stones upon which the law had been written and read the law. The law was stated. The, door, the law was proclaimed for all to hear for all to obey, that they might hear God's ways, that they might live as God's people, and they might be sensitive to the seriousness of sinning against the covenant-making God. Well, before the Lord of God, we stand cursed. We stand devoted to destruction and have no hope of blessing, apart from our sins being atoned. So what a great reason we have today to give thanksgiving to God. The God who offered his son as an atonement, as an offering for our sin, that his holy anger might be averted. Because today, as I look around, each one of us is worthy to receive the destructive anger of God. 
And the only reason we avoid that is because of Jesus Christ. Flee sin. Don't indulge in sin. Don't hide sin. Repent. Turn from your sin. And trust in the saving God, the God of blessing, the God of goodness, the God who is faithful to his promises. Let's pray.